1: So I want to go on and allow our panelists to come up here and allow them to introduce themselves uh, when they get up here. And it, we're not going to do like the standard, like academic style opening statements. We just want to have a, a, a conversation with three women who are passionately committed to the cause of parental rights in the country. So we have Mahek Cook, Ali Mar. Am I mispronouncing your last name? Murray. And Michelle Exner, thank you very much for joining me. Mac, let, let me just start with you and we we can work our way down. How did you get involved with the brutal rights movement?
2: I love the story, but it's quite brief. I'm a new mom. I have a 10-month-old at home and I'm expecting, so another one on the way in December. And I started noticing that our parental rights were under attack in Ohio. We are truly the battleground state there where the ACLU has started targeting not only our schools, But kids and allowing them to perform life altering surgeries like transgender surgeries without parental consent. We have the most important decision this November. It's on our ballot to allow for kids to go through these surgeries without consent. And we are the number one state that the ACLU is trying this out on so i decided to get involved and speak out because i've had a lot of opportunities being an immigrant in this country came here when i was five from india and the number one privilege i've had is education and my parents making those decisions when i was a minor on what's appropriate and what's not in terms of health care that's why i'm involved eric
1: thank you Ellie?
2: Similar
0: story. I'm also a mom. I have three young kids. Um, and I first got involved on the tales of, of COVID and what we were seeing coming into the schools um, via the changes in curriculum. And I think it really opened all of our eyes all of a sudden when parents had a front row seat at the table via our kitchen table um, into the classrooms. And just this eye-opening experience of seeing that there was a lot less focus on academics than we perhaps believed there had been up to that point and that we had really let education as a whole kind of cruise on autopilot um, for the last decade or two. And school isn't what I remember it to be. Um, and so that's how I got involved back in the beginning of the, the COVID days, seeing what education had become.
3: Hi, I'm Michelle Exner, privileged to be here with you all today. And yes, you guessed it, I'm also a passionate mother. Um, I have a rising third and fourth grader. Uh, in 2020, they were um, supposed to be in kindergarten and preschool. Um, very exciting. And of course, uh, so we're in Fairfax County, which I'm sure is infamous, as you all know, for keeping our school shut, right? Um, and so I, I watched my children um, I, I had to tell them, I'm sorry, actually, in-person school's canceled again. I watched my daughter become an introvert. I watched my son continue to, to regress in, in reading. And, and at the end of the day, I figured, my husband and I, will figure it out. We'll get them the help they need. Um, but, but I thought about kids who grew up like me, like Mahek. Uh, American Dream. Grew up in a, a, in a household neither of my parents completed high school. English is a second language. And, and But I had my chance at the American dream. I was able to, to go to school every day. School was not shut down for two years. And so I thought about kids who grew up like me and how many American dreams were just ripping away from students. And, and we're still seeing the consequences. I'm sure everyone in this room thought back in 2020 and thought, what are we doing? We're, we know what's going to happen. We know that children are going to miss massive amount of education. And there, are edu- and there are people, whether it's school district officials or whether it's blue state governors, that were doing nothing. And so here I am um, working on education issues.
1: Now, we talk about this in terms of education, but as we've seen across the country as well, it's so much more expansive than just schools. Uh, there, there is a real rescission or an attempt to re- rescind a lot of parental rights where more and more people on the left discuss openly on MSNBC that uh, parents are co-parent with the government. They're raising children for the government as opposed to it being their kids. I mean, ha- how do you engage people to, to, I mean, first of all, it sounds absurd to say even though you hear it on TV, but how do you raise awareness with parents?
2: So I think it's really important for us to first remember as Americans, the justice system, the Supreme Court for over 100 years has said parents have a fundamental right to direct the education and upbringing of our children. That is a fundamental right. What the left has done, special interest after special interest, including the ACLU, they are targeting us at a grassroots level to erode and eradicate and eviscerate parental rights. And they've been somewhat smart. They've started at school districts, Through schools, they're indoctrinating. They're working on, instead of ABCs, as Tim Scott said, the CRT, we have to make sure that we are more involved as parents in our schools. And then state by state, what we started noticing again is same special interest. ACLU is going after our state legislature. The governor of New Jersey is suing three school districts right now because they want parental consent if a child wants to be called Something else in school. So if a boy's a girl, decides to be a girl, or a girl decides to be a boy, a change in gender ideology. Three school districts said we need parental consent. You have the governor suing these school districts. This is absolutely unacceptable. This is not American. We have to fight for our fundamental rights. And I think the first step is. We need to start working with our state legislatures. I'm proud to say that Georgia is one of eight states that has passed a bill to secure the rights of parents. They have specifically said, if you're talking about sexual orientation or sexual identity, you cannot do it without parental consent. More and more states need to continue to fight for our children. And it starts at the legislature.
0: I think we also, something that gets left behind a lot is we have to be prepared and comfortable with discomfort. And I think we have become so conditioned, probably not those of us in this room, but broadly speaking, um, to not upset the apple cart, to not offend your neighbor, to not want to, you know, reach in and say, oh, well, have you considered this, etc." And if we're not having those conversations with people around us and who are important to us, and then finding our coalition of like-minded people, it's really easy to feel isolated and on an island and like you're the only one that's fighting it. And we talk to so many parents who say, oh, well, I'm afraid that if I speak up, my daughter won't make the soccer team or you know, so-and-so will act a certain way and they'll be out of their friends group. And it's such a catch-22 because as parents, all we wanna do is protect our kids from those types of experiences. Um, but at the same time, if we aren't the ones who are stepping up and having those conversations and fighting for them, we don't get anywhere. So as much as it's, of course, on the, the legislative and the, the activist front, it starts at the kitchen table and it starts with our values and it starts with the conversations that we're having in our neighborhood and the coalitions that we're building to then turn around and go to the school board, to your legislative member, to your congressman, etc., and to say like, look, hey, it's not just me. We have 15 people, we have 50 people, we have 500 people who feel this way. And there's always much more strength, of course, in numbers um, and the ability to have that that voting block or that constituency that's going to speak up person after person after person at a school board meeting on down, right down the
3: roster. And like you said about building a coalition, what we found with parental rights, this isn't a Republican or Democrat issue. This is an issue that transcends politics. And if you ask any parent, the overwhelming majority said, no, I want to be in charge of my kid's education. I want to have a seat at the table. I want to have input. And I want to be the one to instill the values that I think are important to our fa- family. Like you said, Eric, there is from the Biden admin who's our children. No, no, they are not. They're my children. We're raising them um, how we deem appropriate. And so I think one of the things that um, we could be doing, again, building coalition um, by exposing these stories, right? I'm sure when you read these articles, it could be overwhelming to think, oh my gosh, we're being overrun with all of this indoctrination in classrooms. But really what I think, that that is exposing what's happening. That's creating change, and that's building the support to strengthen and fight for parental rights. I think this is the most important Fight of our lifetimes. It, 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 it's about our the next generation of Americans. It's important not only for our family, but for the future of our country, and so exposing and at least for parents defending education on our website we have resources for parents whether it's how to interact with the school board whether it's you want if you want to run for a school board position there's resources for that um and there's also exp- the exposure that we're that pde is taking part of wh- wh- whether it's um lawsuits that we're engaging in whether it, it is um putting up complaints with the office of civil rights um and so there's a lot of work that's that's happening that I think is creating good, important progress here.
1: Michelle, you, you mentioned it being a bipartisan issue the, I, I've seen a lot of the polling on parental rights. And it's like the only group in America that is, doesn't think it's an issue is like hardcore progressives. And overwhelmingly, it, it's women realize the significance of this issue. It, it seems like, I mean, for conservatives, this is an issue we need to be more vocal about.
3: Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I think uh, exposing what's happening. So um, recently, what PD has taken on is let's go through um, the different school districts across the country and find out what are they doing, how are they um, making sure that parents have a seat, and and what we found out that a lot of school districts, in fact, about a thousand, have a policy in place that when it comes to transgender policy of the pronoun use, there's there's policies in these schools. Um, again, a thousand school a thousand school districts about. 18,000 schools impacting 18 million students that these school districts say that parents shouldn't be informed if this is happening with their students. Obviously, that's absurd. We should absolutely be informed with something so critical and so so personal and intimate to, to our child. And so I think what we're saying, again, building that support where I think this has continued to be a critical issue, um, you know, to the next election and beyond.
1: Ali, you, you talk about having young kids and in the schools. Can you just really explain the problems, particularly the Northern Virginia area saw and, and others of the school systems treating the parents as the bad guys during COVID shutdowns?
0: Yeah, of course. So I think we've all probably read a million stories about this, where parents were just at every turn kept on the outside and seen more as, as adversaries, not more as adversaries, seen as adversaries and not partners. Um, and that's why one of the, the projects that we've been working on, um, we're going through and we're, we're looking at school boards across the country and the election rules surrounding them. And interesting fact, school board elections typically only have 5 to 10 percent voter turnout. It's abysmal, and I don't wanna be just another person that sits up here and says like, hey, go out and vote, but five to 10%, like that does not represent our values. And so if you dig into that and back that up, we were very curious, why, why is that the case? And most people don't know when their school board elections are, and the deeper you dig, the more you realize this appears to be pretty intentional. So they're not on general election days, they're very rarely in November, which I think I kind of fall on the minority. I don't think that's necessarily the end of the world. However, what's... What's really sticky is filing deadlines in a lot of places are only 20 to 30 days, sometimes 45, before the off-cycle election. So if you've got an election in May, the candidates are only filing in April. The teachers unions turn on their text list and their email blast and they tell their people and no one else knows. Candidates don't have time to campaign and voters don't have time to ask questions. And there are very few states that post a list of like, hey, here's when the school board elections are, here's who's running. Sample ballot rules vary from state to state for school board elections. In a lot of places, uh, Minnesota, for example, you only have to post a sample ballot Four or five days before an election so if these candidates are filing at the last minute nobody's seen a sample ballot nobody knows when the election is the only people who show up are the five to ten percent that this, that the teachers unions turn on and so we don't have a fighting chance and so i think a lot of specific to the school front a lot of this can be changed even within as much as i'd like to see these election rules changed a little bit can be changed just with the awareness factor, the grab a buddy, go vote kind of thing, and staying involved in keeping feet to the fire. But we need to kind of reform that that school board election process so that there's, you know, at least a six month filing deadline, et cetera, mirror some of the more the federal offices or the bigger ones um, to give people a chance. Because right now, it's it's not surprising with only five to ten percent turnout that our school boards don't reflect our values because nobody knows when they are.
1: Beck, you you mentioned the Ohio constitutional amendment that's up that is cast by the media as a pro-choice measure, but when you actually read it, it's an expansive restriction of parental rights that the ACLU wants to put in the Ohio Constitution that nobody seems to be aware of. It's not abortion. It's a parental rights measure.
2: It's called the anti-parent amendment. You're absolutely right. But what the media has done is continue to trick individuals into thinking this is just about abortion. And let me tell you, it's about much, much more. This amendment that is being pushed by the ACLU and Planned Parenthood specifically states an individual has the right to make its own reproductive decisions. Now you're thinking, what's a reproductive decision? They say, including but not limited to, and they list about six. And this is where it's very important. They don't use the word woman. They say individual. They list reproductive decisions, but they say, including but not limited to. That means transgender surgeries. And nowhere in that amendment is there specification for parental rights. In fact, it states if the state passes anything that is a burden on parents, It will not be held. And the ACLU has won time after time. Parental consent is a burden. That is their MO. This is allowing for transgender surgeries without parental consent. And I said this initially. Ohio truly is the battleground state. The ACLU is trying to eviscerate parental rights, and they're using Ohio as their test case. And what they've done is they've realized very quickly parents... Are not going to stand for this. So now they've turned the same legislation into Florida, but they've added the state may pass parental notification laws. We are at a huge crossroads. It's a diminish you're diminishing not only parental rights, our moral compass, our family values, the discussions we have, as the other ladies have talked about at our dinner table. When you allow the government to dictate transgender surgeries of your children, especially when they're minors. There's no age restriction in there. So this is very dangerous. I won't speak about abortion because at the end of the day, this is much more than abortion. The number one issue right now are parental rights. We are the number one special interest. We need to start standing up and fighting. Abortion needs to be dealt with at the state house, but this is where the ACLU has started across the country. They're no longer going to the state house. They're going to your state constitution and a eviscerating our rights there so we have to wise up you say the word abortion and everybody goes crazy so we have to settle down and say what's at stake here it's parental rights first and that's what we need to fight for
1: so i have got a question and it's very specific for you is you've got a baby and you're about to have another baby how do you even have time to like (laughs) balance and take on this issue
2: I have an incredible support system. I said I was an immigrant, came here when I was five, 10 family members in one home. So my parents, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles, my husband, I have a lot of support. And I truly feel that I've been blessed with all the opportunities I have been given in this country, opportunity to go to Hopefully somebody chairs the Ohio State University um, to attend OH, to attend law school at IU, to work at the U.S. Attorney's Office on counterterrorism cases, opportunity after opportunity. And now it's my time to make sure that I'm giving back and I want to fight for the future of our children because as a child who came here when I was five, I know I would have never had these opportunities if I wasn't in America. And I want to make sure that I give back. So there's always time, Eric. When you, when you have a calling and you feel that you have a duty, you make the time. And I have the privilege of having an incredible family and support system.
1: Ellie and Michelle, you as well. Um It's got to frustrate you both that you've got young kids, you're, you're trying to be advocates for them and for their education, and you're having to fight the very system in which your kids are entrusted to get an education.
3: Yeah, I, I, think what happened over the past couple of years was a great parent awakening, right? I think most of us, at least, well, again, I'm a new kind of school mom, you know, just in the past couple of years, but I don't remember this being in the news. I don't remember this being an issue. We'd go to school. We'd learn reading, math, science, history, right? Um, there wasn't time for all of this. So this wasn't, this wasn't even an issue. Um, and you'd think, with the time that district officials and subadministrators are spending on miscellaneous topics that are great, that our testing scores would be great. No, they're abysmal. Right? I was looking up the test scores last June. Um, I think it was uh, the, the eighth graders and fourth graders had one of the worst reading and math scores in recorded history. Um, and again, just this past June, more more numbers came out for thirteen year olds. Again, w- lower lower points for reading and the worth, worst math scores since since they've tried to uh, started tracking these test scores. So the fact that some schools are spending so much time on the crt on all of the equity on that's just wasted time every minute that these that our students are not learning the the skills that they need to succeed uh, to succeed in their careers and as future citizens of america is a loss for our country and so it is very frustrating. And so what I think the benefit or the the silver lining that's really come up is that I think parents, whether grandparents, everyone in that family unit that Max said is so important is now heavily invested, right? I'm not complacent anymore. I just had open house and I'm skeptical of everyone in that classroom, right? I want to, of course, have a great relationship with my my students, uh, with my kids' teachers. But at the same time, I, i'm gonna I'm gonna scrutinize everything that they're bringing home, every email, everything that's happening. Um, and so thank you. Um, and so nothing's gonna, no, nothing's gonna get by. And uh, you know, uh, C- Christopher Columbus Day—that is, that is, uh, that, is uh, that that day—that that that history lesson has gotten tricky in school. And uh, we had to do some deprogramming when our third grader last year told us that he was just an evil man and all of that. I'm like, well, let's go through that. There's some missing context there. And I told her, I'm like, I'm gonna just call the, I'm gonna email a teacher. She's like, Mom, please don't, please don't. And so that is a hurdle, I think, that as, as moms, uh, parents, that we can relate, is that when our students are old enough to realize that we might embarrass them or that it might become awkward with their teachers, that, that's, that's a challenge. That's an obstacle. Um, and so so we do have to navigate that a little more cautiously. Uh, we, we do, I think, want to have good relationships with our students' teachers, right? It should be this mutual Relationship where we're both invested in helping the students, right? Helping them help us. Um, and so, but when, when that, when that bond becomes broken, then, then that's when we kind of have to look to other, other resources to make sure. Because my kids are the most important thing in my life. I'm sure to every parent in here, they agree. We do everything for them. Every single day I wake up and think, am I doing enough for them, right? And so, um, and so the same thing with, with the education fight. Yeah, when we
0: were making the decision, so my oldest is, is five, um, and she's going to be a kindergartner this year, and my husband and I agonized, it, agonized over it for a long time because we remember our school experience and how much fun that was and what kindergarten was like, and, you know, we moved to this great school district where our kid could walk to school, and now that's all changed, and we're driving her 20 minutes down the road to go to school, but when we were doing interviews with each of these schools to kind of figure out, you know, what was going to be the right place for her. Like Michelle was just saying, removing that complacency makes you that much more confident that your kid's going to get what they need out of it. Um, and it also does put the teacher, the administration, and the school kind of on notice that people are paying attention. And to to drill a little bit deeper in what Michelle said, we're not only falling behind where we, we being our kids, we're, are not only falling behind where we were academically, against ourselves over the last five, 10 years. It's been a 10-year decline to where our, our peers and our adversaries are in the world. So it's also a national security issue. And when we're having these bigger conversations, as much many of the presidential candidates who've come through here have said, you know, talking about China and Russia and the great power competition, how are we going to, you know, continue to keep our elbows out in our posture? If If our next generation is so focused on the identity politics and on race and gender and not offending anyone, and they're not learning anything in school, it's a national security issue too. And it's gonna continue to put us as a country at risk, not just you know problems within the household and our communities, us as a country are going to suffer for that. So this is a huge, huge issue that every single one of us needs to be extremely involved in, not just parents. So if you have friends, neighbors, grandparents, et cetera, you need to make sure that they're pulled in on these conversations as well and really have a true understanding of just the breadth of this discussion and how forward-looking we have to be when we're having these conversations.
1: Mack, to bounce off something that that Ali said there, you're from an immigrant family. And remember yesterday, Nikki Haley said that, that her mother, who came over from India, one of the first female judges in India, gave up that career to move here that she at the table every night complains about illegal immigration given what it took for her to legally come to this country. I've got to imagine as an immigrant family as well, your family looks at this stuff and thinks it's absolutely insane that kids are more likely to learn about a gender unicorn than in the alphabet when you get into a school.
2: I'm really glad my father isn't here and he doesn't have the mic because let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he spent uh, over 18 years in the Indian Navy and gave up his career so that our family could live the American dream. We came here legally to the United States and the number one thing that was discussed at the dinner table, what did you learn at school today? That's it. I could complain And I'm sure Nikki has lots of stories because look, we do look different. I make this joke, but I am serious. I was a hairy little Indian kid on the playground and nobody looked like me and nobody wanted to play with me. And I had to learn how we were similar rather than different. So what Nikki Haley said is true. When you have immigrants coming to our country fighting to be here legally, legally, those are the ones that you have to applaud. Those are the ones you have to cheer for. But then once we get here, once we get here, the number one thing I'll tell you an immigrant family wants is better education for our children. This is why we come to America. It's a land of opportunity, but it's education that drives us here. And what's happening in our schools is atrocious. I'll tell you, my mother was a private school and then public school teacher, almost 30 years. She retired about five years ago. And as I'm telling her, mom, this is what's happening in school today. She is shocked. She is dumbfounded. She said, what happened to math and science? When I retired, that's what we were discussing. There wasn't gender ideology and pronouns and keeping secrets from parents. Parents were demanding, what is my child learning in school today? And she taught at an inner city school. Many of us know inner city schools, those families, unfortunately, don't have the father at the table anymore. These are moms and grandparents that are raising these children. They are invested just as much as any other family, regardless of the zip code, in education. So my parents today are very confused, but they know that this was happening. You know, I got my master's degree in local, state local politics worked on an international degree at IUPUI, and they told me in Indiana that my thesis was a love letter to the Bush administration, and they would not pass me until I cited about 10 books written by Democrats. So I closed my eyes, opened up the book, picked a line, and inserted it in my thesis. That is the only reason they passed me. All my other grades were A's. But if you can imagine this was happening five years ago, what is happening in our universities today? I mean, this is not acceptable. I don't talk about diversity and inclusion today. I talk about diversity in thought, and that is what we need to bring to the table. That is what our children need to celebrate. What's happening, whether it's CRT or what's happening in our education system today, this isn't why my family came to America, and this isn't why I came. So I'm going to continue to fight to make sure we get back on track.
1: I I have a friend in the audience uh, who was a private school teacher and I know we're talking about public schools, but it always shocks me how so many elite private schools in the nation are doing the same thing the public schools are and the parents are often not clued in or the parents who are pay the actual bills directly to the school and the alumni who make donations are oftentimes hit with by an administration that lies obfuscates and still values indoctrination of, of students. I'm where one of the, the big private schools here in Atlanta now, uh, which has a background as a military academy and it doesn't even want to tell people about that anymore unless they trigger kids at the school. I mean, it, when it's that pervasive into a, a private school where the parents funding the school are also opposed to it, I mean, it, sometimes it just feels like it, there's too much to push back. I mean, I don't know who wants to address that and... and the private school fight.
0: (laughs) Well, so, I mean, the reason we all pause is because private schools are tricky for exactly what you just said. Um, There is no governing body per se in which the populace has a way to make a change. You have to, you have to hit them where it counts, which is the funding, but you need to find a handful of people who will stand on principle and pull their funding. And if you can't do that and you can't connect it to some of these issues, then they just continue on with the status quo. Um, It's part of why I touched on earlier needing to find comfort in the discomfort and be able to have those tough conversations with people and build those coalitions. Because if you're not putting together within that private school, the coalition of parents who can go to those handful of backers and say like, look, you need to pull your funding. This is nuts. Um, But then you also have to look at it as to the pipeline too, because at the end of the day, people are sending their kids to these places, especially these really, really elite ones, because they know that it's the pipeline to the Harvard, et cetera. But if Harvard... Etc. all have that same DEI statement and they all are accepting, you know, applications based on the portrait of the student versus the rigorous academic workload um, that the student is taking on, then it doesn't really matter. And then the parents have no reason to to push back and to try and get someone to pull their funding because it all just is one step into the next. Um, So private schools are tricky and, you know, I won't shy away from that. Um, It's why we spend a lot of our our time focused on, on public schools where we have that power of the people and where we can work within the election laws that I was just talking to you guys about to really be able to make those change changes. But at the end of the day, there are 50 million kids in this country right now who are the next generation. And if we're not starting to like chip away at this piece by piece on the, on the private side, in the public side, school choice, et cetera if we're not chipping away at this from every single angle, we are just gonna to continue to fall further and further behind, our kids are gonna get dumber and dumber and dumber, and we're just gonna lose our standing in the world. And it, it is that dire, like it's, it sounds crazy, but it is that crazy. Um, it's why the three of us have you know all, don't wanna speak for you, I know we've kind of changed careers to get into this, um, and it is that important.
1: So let me ask you a question that, that just given your, your backgrounds and the ages of your kids, I can imagine that the progressive response would be, well, I mean, your kids are really young. I mean, yours haven't started in the system yet. So I mean, why should anybody even listen to y'all because you don't really even know what the system's like having just gotten into it, um, which is frustrating, I, I understand. But I got to imagine that that's one of the progressive responses that comes up of even y'all are really too young to appreciate what really is going on.
3: I mean, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, I, my kids are in third and fourth grade. I feel like if if I don't start getting them in the right direction now, um, then then when is the right time? Right? Is it eighth grade? Is it in high school? Is it when I'm college and I probably lost them? Um, so what I think the most important thing we can do now is sometimes as parents, we have to learn to be uncomfortable, right? If I see something at school that that I'm, I, I don't agree with, right, if it's standing up to the PTA president, um, then, then I'm going to have to do that. And and I think that some some parents have to figure out, and I think this probably goes to your private school question again, is that there is a social cost to it. Right. And, and you have to take that into account. Maybe you get invited to less parties. I don't know, right? Less picnics or less gatherings. But at the end of the day, if you're standing up to your morals and sticking to them, then you're going to, you're going to feel good about that. And you're going to know that you're making a, a, a priceless invaluable investment in, in your child. So I think. Being okay with being un- uncomfortable, um, and we, we see this with all the mob mentality, right? That we see happening in the country. This is all that this is. We saw it in 2020 with all the BLM movement. We're seeing it with the with all the. Uh, you know, LGBTI infinity, um, you know, all the equity that we're seeing in schools and so this is all a mob mentality and and it, it takes brave people to say like, no I'm not okay with that and I know that that's going to cost me, um, not not well maybe financially, I don't know, but um, maybe, you know, I'm not going to get those C-suite jobs at those corporations, but that's fine, I'm fine, I'm, I'm happy um, and, and, and content in knowing that I'm doing the best I can for, for my kids and that means steering them away from all of this stuff that's not going to help them in life. So, I also think the the data speaks, and part of
0: what's interesting about the public school system is they, of course, have to report the data. So, if someone were to come at me with that type of a, a rebuttal, well, your kids, your kids in kindergarten, like, what do you know? The data speaks. It's all public. It's published. So, when you're showing me that there is a 97% graduation rate from the high school, but only 40% passed the SOLs and the average SAT score is X and the ACT score is Y, why did 97% of them graduate? Like, how does, that, how does that show academic proficiency? Forget proficiency, like, I mean, that's not even a functional adult. That's why kids, when you go in, I, I can't tell you how many times I have stood waiting for someone, a teenager, to make change and seen them pull out an iPhone or like type it into the cash register, or God forbid, you give the extra dollar bill so that, or the extra change so you get the dollar bill back. I mean, that is mind blowing, mind blowing math. And I say this as someone who is like, who was, went to an art school. I can do that math. Okay, so like.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so just for the record, I went to law school. I can't do that math.
0: <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's things like that and anecdotes like that where you can kind of tease and lighten it up, find that comfort in the discomfort. But like, the data speaks. And if, if you're passionate about this issue or even like moderately paying attention, you can pick any four or five of those things just from what is on your, you know. And in, in fact, a lot of times, the schools brag about it for some reason, right on the homepage. Um, And so you can just pull right from there. And those are very good pieces of data to have as those conversational rebuttals when you're talking to people in your
2: community. And I'll say as a new mom, I have every right to be at that table. And I started getting involved in parental rights before I was a mother. I was in one of the largest groups in central Ohio because moms were coming Deeply concerned about what was happening in Upper Arlington schools, what was happening in Dublin schools. My purpose in life, my mission has always been, as I said, to give back, especially to our children. I want each child to have the same opportunities that I have had living that American dream. I ran for office in 2020. would like to say I ran out of time, but um, it was truly a year where every Democrat won in Franklin County, Ohio, and just wiped out Republicans. But I never stopped fighting for our children and for rights. So I know what's happening in our school systems. My mother was a teacher. I know what the good days were like and what we're facing today and the challenges. So I am not only fighting for my children who are not in school today, but for other people's children because I truly believe this is the greatest country. We have the greatest opportunity. And the only way we're going to succeed with we look out for one another if we fight for one another and if we ensure that education is the number one conversation at dinner tables i care about people and it's really difficult for me to see these moms and dads today struggling when i ran for office i can tell you during covid yes i wore a mask in 90 degree weather and i did run against a doctor i don't recommend that in the future but during covid so um i knocked on doors and Most families came out and said that their child was struggling. They were struggling with learning online. They were struggling with the material. They were struggling with depression. We have so much work to do to catch up. Our national achievement grades and testing, I mean, we're behind in reading and math. We're not going to be able to beat China. I'm glad the presidential nominees all are talking about this. It's absolutely important. You don't beat China without good education in the United States of America. And that's where we need to focus today.
1: So to wrap this up in our remaining moments, and Michelle, I'll start on on your end now and work back, the what do you all recommend? Like we have people in the room who are grandparents or parents expecting parents haven't gotten married yet, but will I mean, what do you tell people to do? How do they get involved? How do they fix sure. it?
3: Well, I'll say one don't underestimate what you can do at the individual level in your respective communities. So it's so powerful. Each of you has a right as an American. Um, and so please have your voice heard. Um, the second part is I'm going to plug parents defending education. Um, we are there to support parents to be a voice for the parents. It was a sta- the organization was established in the spring of of 21, obviously as a result of all the frustration that parents across the country were were feeling. And since then, right, closures, the school closures might have started this movement, but it really just opened their eyes to, to everything else happening. Whether it was a parental exclusion that's happening, right, just a complete assault on parental rights across the country. Whether it is. It, if frankly, the discrimination that we're seeing in some in some schools. I mean, we are having some school districts that are starting up different programs, extracurricular, extracurricular activities, all taxpayer funded, and they're discriminating by race. You can only apply to these if you're X amount, you know, if you're um, if you're a minority and whatnot. You know that that is a violation of civil rights. That is discriminatory. There is no other way to put it. And so, when PD hears about that, we go into action. We put up a complaint. We start. We just started an investigation. Or the uh, Department of Education just launched an investigation after we filed a complaint against a high school in North Carolina that set up an organization that excluded some people just based on their race, which it was wrong before and it's still wrong. Um, And so whenever you hear something like that, maybe you feel like I don't have the power to do something, please forward it to us. We have an entire team who's vetting all of these tips and and going into action to make sure that there is change. Um, We have another, we have a lawsuit going on in Ohio where um, a school district is saying that there will be penalties and punishment for students who use the wrong pronouns to address some of their peers and it's not doesn't stop there they also have some sort of snitch line um and and also even if some of this stuff is happening uh, at, in their homes perhaps using their phone oh that's included as well know that that is unconstitutional and so we have a lawsuit going on that so i think for all the negative things that we've talked about just know that there's a lot of action taking place to be a counterbalance that is so needed right now to counter all of that and and I, and I think that is something to be proud of and something to be optimistic about.
0: I'm going to try and spin this into something positive. So 5 to 10% voter turnout in a school board election tells me that we have a long way to go in terms of getting people to come out and, and vote. But every single one of those percentage points is a person and is an opportunity to make a connection and to turn them out. And so this is perhaps the greatest example of of any issue where a handful of people can have an immense impact. So building those coalitions within the community, going in and talking to teachers, talking to the PTA lead, making sure that your representatives within your hyper-local community actually represent you, doing the research. Look, a lot of these parents especially don't vote in school board elections, like we said, because we don't know what, they don't know when they are. So, if you have an extra 10 minutes on your hand, like find it and tell someone. And, you know, good old game of telephone, like pa- just keep passing it along and make sure that people in your community have the information that they need to be able to make an informed decision. In a lot of places, um, school board positions are nonpartisan, and so they're just listed alphabetically. And so it's no surprise when the three winners for the three open seats. Last names are A, B, and C, right? And so there, there is tremendous room for impact at a hyper-local level that everyone in this room can make, especially if you're you know, a parent, grandparent, et cetera. There's, there's a lot of room for improvement. And so to try and leave it on a, a little bit of a hopeful note, um, we can get it way above that 5 to 10%. There's the election reform side of it, um, which our organization is hoping to make some, some headway on, um, but we can't do that of Course, without
2: people also coming out and raising those numbers organically? I would say speak up and speak out. I think that's extremely important, and it starts at our dining tables ask your children if you're a grandparent ask your grandchild what are you learning in school i think that's the number one conversation we need to have and then legislatively there is a parents bill of rights 18 states have passed it georgia being the last it is so important for our states to start passing legislation this bill specifically states that parents have a fundamental right to direct education and if the government wants to step in they have to pass a strict scrutiny test, which means there must be a compelling state interest before they can come between you and your child. And that's generally abuse and neglect. So we need to start a national movement. Right now we have the Supreme Court on our side for over a hundred years, but states need to start passing a parental bill of rights so that we can reassert our right, reclaim what it means to be parents and reclaim the decisions that we're making. But I think, number one, kitchen table, start those conversations again. Don't sit in front of the TV and have dinner. Go back to that, what I call, that traditional family setting that makes us great, that makes us all think about the issues that we're facing. And together, I believe we can unify and come up with solutions and continue to make sure that our children are doing well.
1: Well, listen, I, I know the slings and arrows get hurled at y'all for doing this, particularly from teachers' unions and, and even elected officials who don't like it. So thank you very much, and thank you for spending time with us here to talk about the issue. Thank you. Thank, thank, thank so much.